this thought, and I'm calling it Route 66. How many of you have been on Route 66? And uh, quite a few of you have. Do I have a map of that Route 66? Did I put one on there? There it is right there. And uh, travels all the way from up around Indiana all the way over uh, to California. And, of course, I've, I've traveled that as I've been across this country many, many times. But what we're going to do is we're not going to get in a car on Wednesday nights and drive the Route 66. But what we're going to do is we're going to travel through the Bible. And I'm calling it Route 66 because it's, we're taking a trip through all 66 books of the Bible. Now, I will tell you ahead of time that this is a, an overview. It's kind of a survey uh, of all the books of the Bible. That certainly, I can't do justice to every book, but, but the attempt on my part, with the Lord's help, is every week we're going to do a book of the Bible every week. Now, some of the smaller books we might be able to do more than one, but you see all the books of the Bible there on the shelves. And so what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to launch out tonight. Now, the approach that I'm going to take is that we're going we're to start, instead of at the beginning with Genesis, we're going to start in the New Testament. And so notice I took all the books off the shelf except for the New Testament books. And so we're going to begin tonight. Now, we're not going to start with Matthew. We're going to introduce the New Testament. So I will tell you, and then my daughter's here tonight, and she went to Bible college where I taught, and I told her, I said, this is not a class that I taught at the college, but it's probably going to sound like a class that I taught at the college. And, and this is a Bible study, and I hope you came to learn something tonight. And really, a lot of what I'm going to share with you is very historical, and some of it you may be familiar with, some of it you may not. Uh, do the best you can. I left you plenty of room. If you grab one of the, one of the things, you can fill that out. If, if I get going too fast, uh, I will tell you this, that this is being recorded tonight, and so you should be able to go back and watch it again if you need to watch it and fill in something. So there are some handouts there if you did not grab one. But I want to begin, when I talk about introducing the New Testament, notice how we're going to begin this tonight is there's a period in your Bible when you go from the last book, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi, all right? And the first book of the New Testament is Matthew. So when you go from Malachi to Matthew, you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, in a lot of our Bibles, it's, it's as easy as the flip of one page. But understand that when, when God gave his word, that there was actually a period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I'm going to focus on that. And here's what many people call that, the intertestimonial period. Notice there the word testament between the Old Testament and New Testament. And then you have the inter in between the Old and New Testament. Now, during this time period... It really deals with the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. And in our Bibles, we don't have anything there, but what I'm going to share with you is all validated information that will help you. I don't know about you, but I like to know, you know as much as I can so that I can understand my Bible, I can understand the context a little bit more. And so that's why I wanted to begin here. So after God gave Malachi the prophecy that he gave to him, which is what we call the book of Malachi, at the end of that, there was no voice heard and there was no vision seen from heaven until in our Bibles in the New Testament when God spoke through an angel to Zacharias. Anybody remember 
Zacharias was the father of who? John the Baptist, right? All right. So remember, remember, it, it, you know, it, the whole thing about call his name John, right? So, so listen, for a time period of 400 years, write that down, they oftentimes call this the silent uh, era, the, the silent years many times. Now think about that. Imagine some of us and our husbands and wives, if I went for four days without talking to my wife. Imagine if I went 40 days or 40 years. Try 400. See, God had been communicating to his people through what we call revelation. And, of course, he did that through, like, the prophets. You have the major prophets in the Old Testament. You have Isaiah and Jeremiah. You have the, the Ezekiel, the, the major prophets. You have all the minor prophets and again, major and minor doesn't mean less important. It just means the, the, the prophecies given to many of those, Haggai and others, were much smaller than what God gave to Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. But here's the thing is, for all that time, God had been speaking to his people through the prophets. You know, when we read our Bible, here's a statement we see a lot of times. Thus saith, finish it, the Lord. So, Listen, when Isaiah was standing and trumpeting the word of God in his day, he wasn't saying his words. He was sharing God's word, God's revelation, God's message, and we call that prophecy. Well, listen, when the Old Testament ends, for 400 years, God was silent. Now, if you know enough about your Bible and you know about the nation of Israel, there was a big reason for that because the nation of Israel continued, instead of following God, instead of letting God be God, they chose to fall into idolatry. As a matter of fact, that's why they ended up in captivity. And it was because of that that, that we see in our Bibles that God goes silent. There's no revelation from God. So what happens is, at the end of the Old Testament, if I can call it this, and I don't think this is wrong, the Jewish canon of scriptures, which would be what we would call our Old Testament, the Jewish canon was settled in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and as you look at that, the contents of what is the Jewish canon is equivalent to our 39 books that we today call the Old Testament that go from Genesis all the way to Malachi. All right, everybody with me? So we're talking about this intertestimonial period. Now, during this time period, 400 years, we need to understand what was going on in the world, okay? Like today, we all know that, that when it comes to uh, our country, there are uh, really two dominant political parties. Now, there's some smaller ones, uh, but, but we see that there's always going to be someone or some empire that is trying to have control over this world. Well, it was the same back in, in, in this time period between the Old Testament and New Testament. So let me share with you, and I think you'll, you'll understand this as we go through this, but this is history. You can look this up. Notice the first empire that we want to look at is the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire, of course, was from 539 B.C. to 333 B.C. And what's interesting about the Persian Empire is the Persians actually liberated Israel 
uh, from the Babylonian captivity. They had been kept in captivity. It was the Persians that actually helped the Jews to return to Palestine. And when the Jews did return to Palestine, the temple actually became the center of worship, which it had been in the past. So you have the Persian Empire. Now, there was another world power that came in after the Persians, and that's the Grecian Empire, 333 to 167 BC. Now, we all have heard of Alexander the Great. This is the, the, the great Grecian Empire. Alexander uh, defeated the Persians, and what's neat about it is, is that Alexander was kind to the Jewish people. Uh, he actually had, had, had a little bit of a, of a heart towards the Jewish people. And so during this time period, the Jews, what they did was they began to scatter among uh, the, the known world at that time. Now, here, this is important. As the Jews began to scatter, remember, this is the Grecian Empire. So this is where the culture is Grecian or Greek culture. So what the Jews did is they began to scatter in and among the Grecian Empire was they began to adopt a lot of the Greek culture in their lives. Have you ever heard the word Hellenistic? Uh, you hear uh, Hellenistic Jews. These are Jews that have adopted the Greek culture of life. Now during this time period, here's what happens. Alexander the Great, he dies during this time, the Grecian Empire, and when he died, his, he had four generals. And these four generals all were fighting over Robert, guess what piece of property? Palestine. All four of these generals, they wanted that, by the way, nothing's changed even to this day. Everybody still wants that little piece of property, all right? So here they are, they're fighting over this. And what happened is, is that Antichus Epiphanes IV of Syria, which was one of his generals, he actually sought to bring the Jews under Grecian culture and the Grecian religions. Now, here's what he did. He polluted the temple in Jerusalem. He set up idolatry, and he forbade the Jews from circumcising their children. So he pretty much kind of upended much of what the Jewish way of life was. Now, what's interesting is during the Grecian Empire, the predominant languages of the Grecian Empire were two languages. Of course, one is easy, Greek, and the other one is a language known as Aramaic. So when you look in our Bibles, the Old Testament was Hebrew, and there are some parts that were Aramaic, and the New Testament, of course, is Greek. So those are the three languages that we know of when it comes to the Bible. But during this Grecian Empire, we see Greek and Aramaic are the two predominant languages. Now, the Grecian Empire then ended in 167 to what was known as the period of the Maccabees. Now, the Maccabees, 167 to 63 B.C., these were Jews. They were actually Jewish rebel warriors that took control of the area known as Judea. And, and as a result of that, in time, during this time period, these, these rebel warriors, they actually became more and more engaged in war and in politics. And because that became the focus of that, the priesthood during this particular time became corrupt. Uh, so this was not a, a, a spiritual step forward. This was actually a spiritual step backwards. And then, of course, at the end of the period of the Maccabees, the last of the empires we'll talk about tonight, 
is the Roman Empire, which began about 63 B.C. and goes to somewhere between 100 and 175 A.D., which was the height of Roman rule. And, of course, Pompey the Great was the one that conquered Palestine. Uh, Herod the Great was made king by the Romans. And what's interesting is, think about this, Herod the Great was the one that was sitting on the throne when God sent forth his son into this world. So that's, that's why I shared that little bit of history. Now keep in mind that a lot of this came into view, a lot of this was going on in the world. Understand that everything happens in God's timing. God, Listen, when it comes to Hebrew of the, of the Old Testament of our Bible and the Greek of the New Testament, God could have chosen any language. God could have chosen Pig Latin. God could have chosen Spanish. God could have chosen any language, but he chose those languages. And, of course, we see the, the, really how they, they wove into history. So it's important for us to understand what was going on in the world leading up to the time of Christ during this 400 years known as the years of silence or the intertestimonial. Everybody with me tonight? All right. Told you it's going to be a little bit on the historical side. Now, let me share a couple things. Notice the next thing in your, on your paper there. Let me talk to you a little bit about some of the Jewish writings that we need to be familiar with when it comes to our Bible and some of the history. Now, these Jewish writings, they too came into existence. Many of them did during the silent years. The first one I want you to write down is known as the Apocrypha. How many of you have heard Apocrypha? All right, looks like most of you have. And, and just to give you, a, you can write this down. The word apocrypha means hidden or secret. Hidden or secret. It's actually 14 Jewish historic books. Now, you know, I, I've, I've looked at these. I haven't read them like I read my books, the books of our Bible. But, but when you look at this, here's, here's the important thing is, they're historical books. When you study the scriptures, here's what you find is these books, known as the Apocrypha, they were never accepted by the Jews as being the inspired word of God. Uh, now again, that doesn't mean they're wrong, they're false. It just means they were not inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. As a matter of fact, in our, in our Bible that we have today, Years ago, what they did was they actually, uh, for a, a, a time period, between the Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible used to have the apocryphal books in between the Old Testament and New Testament, but they, they, they realized they took them out because a lot of people, because it was in between the two Testaments, on the outside it said Holy Bible, that people thought it was a part of God's Word, and they took it to be the Word of God. They're, they're not inspired of God, but they are historical events for the Jewish people. So, so the one thing we need to understand is they were never accepted by the Jews as being inspired, and they were not referenced by Jesus nor by any of the New Testament writers. So we, again, we, we don't see the reason to include them because what we have in our Bible is God's Word, the inspired Word of God. And I hope you understand that. But you need to be familiar with the apocryphal books and what they are. Notice the second Jewish writing that I wanted to bring to your attention was called the Targums. Now, the Targums, if you want to write this down, here's what they are. They're the translation of the Old Testament scriptures into Aramaic. 
So that, remember I told you, Greek and Aramaic. So the Old Testament scriptures, what they did was they translated the Old Testament scriptures into the Aramaic language. Now they did this after Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. And again, there was a reason for this because of the language, Aramaic language at the time. And, and you'll see this in just a minute, but we need to understand what the Targums were. Here's the next Jewish writing I want you to write down is the Talmud, T-A-L-M-U-D. Now, what is the Talmud? This is important. It is a compilation of Hebrew civil and ceremonial laws that are based on the Torah. Does anybody know what the Torah is? First five books, oftentimes the Pentateuch. So, so here's the thing is, when you look at the Talmud, here's what it is. It, is, it consisted of the rabbis, the, the Jewish rabbis' interpretation of the law, and it became known as the traditions of their fathers. Now, how many of you would rather hold to the word of God over the traditions of our fathers, right? Uh, matter of fact, turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 15, if you would. Matthew chapter 15. Let me show you here, when, when you think about something like the Targum and the Talmud, and of course, especially the Talmud here, these uh, Hebrew civil and ceremonial laws based on the Torah, Matthew chapter 15, look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Then came to Jesus, notice, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, why do thy disciples transgress, notice the statement, the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? <laughs> Jesus just kind of put it out there. He says, for God commanded, saying, honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, it is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. So again, Jesus says, look, you, you have taken God's word and you've perverted it. You have put the traditions. And by the way, nowadays, we see a lot of religions of the world today that are taking a book of man and elevating it above the book of God, above the word of God. And, and so we see here that, again, we think about uh, it's important that we have uh, spiritual leadership in our lives, but the, the Talmud simply is the rabbi's interpretations of the law. Listen, I don't want to know what a rabbi's thinking. No disrespect to a rabbi. I want to know what thus saith the Lord. Uh, when, when I stand here in this sacred desk, I want to make sure that I am sharing with you what God has to say instead of what I have to say. Look, it is wrong for me or any preacher to stand up here and give my opinions, all right? And so we see what, these, what the Talmud is. And then notice the last Jewish writing, and maybe you've heard this, the Septuagint. How many of you have heard of that one, the Septuagint? All right, and so here it is, if you want to write it down. This is the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. So remember, the Targums were the Old Testament scriptures into Aramaic. The Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. Now, the beauty of this is this, is that the translation of the Hebrew scriptures 
in the Greek aided in spreading the Jewish faith in a Greek culture. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I have God's word in the English language. <laughs> I mean, listen, I've looked at some, I'll be honest with you, uh, Tim's dad's here tonight, and, and I've tried to even read the, the KJV 1611. That's a pretty tough one to read right there. I'm glad, I'm glad that God has, has given preserved his word in our language. And uh, Sunday on Sundays, Nazarel is translating for our Spanish folks. And I, and I know that they're glad that they have God's word in their language. By the way, there are still thousands of languages, people groups in the world that still don't have a copy of God's word in their language. And we ought to count our blessings that we have the word of God in our language. And so when I look at this, I think it's a wonderful thing because, listen, when... When this happened, the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, you know what that did? It opened God's word to the world. It, the God's word went farther, and that's why I love uh, all of our missionaries that go to the countries where it's a language that they don't know. You know what the first thing they do? They take language school. And, and I'll tell you this, I always tell people when they ask me, look, you don't want to translate uh, God's word for the Japanese people using your King James Bible. You want to go back to the original source, and that is, if you're, if you're translating the New Testament, it would be the Greek language, which is what God gave his word in to begin with. And so, I, look, I want to have the pure word of God, and we see here that there were some Jewish writings. Now, the reason I gave you those is because they came into existence, many of them did, during the silent years. Now, Let's move on. Here's, here's something I want you to be, you've heard of a synagogue, right? There's one over in Century Village, right? Several over in Century Village. Now, you think about in the Old Testament of our Bible, God gave the, the pattern for what we call the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable structure. Remember uh, all the curtains and all the sockets and everything that God said, I want you to, and, and uh, was his name Bezalel, I believe, that helped... Uh, uh, artificer that, that helped to make a lot of the things that, that, and so what they would do is they would travel and then God would have them stop and they would set up the, the tabernacle and, and everything had to be exactly the way God wanted it to be. And they had the Holy of Holies and all the, all the pieces of furniture and all that that went along with it. Well, then remember, David assembled all the material, but he had blood on his hands. God wouldn't let him build the temple, but Solomon did. And so the temple became the, the, the permanent structure of God. Well, remember what happened to the, the nation of Israel. The, the Jewish people, they were, sent into, they were sent into captivity. And when you go into captivity, they couldn't carry the temple with them. It's a little big, all right? So what they had to do was they had to figure out a way that they could still worship God. And so that's where the synagogue comes in. It was a development during this period, and many believe that it began in the homes of the exiles of Babylon. That, that's where it began. After the remnant returned from captivity, the Jews, remember I said they began to scatter, they call that the diaspora. The Jews began to repopulate and go to many different places. But think about this, they could no longer go to Jerusalem, which was the center of worship. And so that's where this matter of the synagogue comes in. The synagogue is a place of instruction. It was a place where they were instructed in the scriptures. And, and so the heart of Jewish religious practices was continued in the synagogues. Remember, as you read about the Apostle Paul, that's what he would do. He would go into 
places like this, and he would stand and preach the Word of God and teach the Word of God. Well, the heart of, of the Jewish religious practices where they heard not only the oral law, but they, heard the, they were able to practice the written law, took place in the synagogue. So almost every town where Jews lived, there was a synagogue. And this was their, their place of worship, you know. I had a church, uh, a lady from a church call me uh, yesterday, and I talked to her for probably, I don't know, maybe uh, half an hour, and she was telling me they're a small church meeting in a, in a school, and she was asking me a lot of questions about what we're doing, and, and, uh, and, and she was basically talking about how that they're, they're probably just going to uh, maybe use a park or something like that uh, to, to assemble together. And I said, well, uh, you know, a church is not a building. It's the people of God, and you just find a place where, where you can get together and worship the Lord, and that's kind of the idea behind the synagogue, and again, this is something during that 400 years, we're still in that from Malachi to Matthew, I want you to understand all that was going on. Now, here's an important section, I want you to write this down, some of these, is some of these religious and political groups, or these sects of people, S-E-C-T-S, and, and again, we see these as we're reading our Bible, especially in the New Testament. And many of these groups came into being during the 400 years. So notice the first one. Uh, of course, you see the Samaritan people. Now, as we think about this, the, the Samaritans were a remnant of Judah. These were people, they were Jewish people that had intermarried. And the people that they married or are married along with were heathen idolaters and when they were confronted about what they were doing, they, they refused to return to the pure worship of God. So really what the Samaritans were as, as all of this began to happen was they were apostates. They were half-breed Jews. They were a mixed religion. They mixed religion with idolatry. Now, we know from studying our Bibles that the Jews were despised by full-blooded Jews. Listen to what the Bible says. You write the reference down if you want. John 4, 9. The Bible says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. See, it was, it was common knowledge that the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. And be honest with you, I mean, people that did not want to worship God in the purest form, uh, there was a lot of animosity that was there, and so we need to understand who the Samaritans were, and, and of course, there was really uh, no relationship there. There was a lot of uh, just difficulties between, remember, remember where Jesus, this passage I read from John 4, where uh, he said to his disciples, he said, I must needs go through where? Samaria. And he sat down on the well there. Remember, his disciples, they, they, they thought, we don't go through Samaria. They, they thought that the dust of Samaria would defile them. And, and Jesus, of course, realized, hey, look, there's a woman coming through here, and I need to have a conversation. I love that because many believe that when he actually dealt with that woman and she realized who he was, she went into town and she told everybody, of course, she didn't have a good reputation. And the Bible says all the men of the city came out. Many believe that Samaria was the beginning of a revival that years ago, years later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter number eight, that Philip ended up preaching in that same town and there was great joy in that city. I believe the seeds of that were, were planted by the Lord Jesus himself and this woman at the well. So we see here the Samaritans. The second group I want you to write down 
is the Pharisees. Now, the word or the name Pharisee, if you want to write this down, it means separated. Now, don't, don't get confused with that word separated. They were separated from the political party of the nation is what they were. Uh, they considered themselves, Pharisees considered themselves the guardians of the law. That's what they considered themselves in, in their belief. Now, again, this, you're, you're thinking to yourself, you know, is that right? In their beliefs, they were conservative. But what they really were, were they were legalistic separatists who relied more on the traditions of their fathers, as we just saw, than on the scriptures. They relied more on the tradition of the fathers than on their scriptures. And it was because they did that, that their religion, and if I can use that word, their religion left them spiritually barren and condemned by the Lord. Uh, if you want to, again, if you want to write this reference down, Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. Listen to this, Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I say Jesus said it pretty straight there about the Pharisees. And so again, this is another group that is dominant or predominant as we read through the first four books of our New Testament. Here's the next group is the scribes. Now, when you read your Bible, sometimes you'll see the word scribes, sometimes you'll see the word lawyers. They're the same group, okay? Scribes, lawyers, here's what they are. They are students, they're interpreters, and they're teachers. Now, at this time, the only Bible that was given by God was the Old Testament. So they were interpreting the Old Testament scriptures, they were teaching the Old Testament scriptures, and they were very traditional. But the sad thing was, is those that, that actually were entrusted with the Word of God and were teaching others, they sided with the Pharisees instead of with Jesus. Here's another reference, write it down, Matthew 21, verse 15. Listen to this. The Bible says, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. I mean, listen, did Jesus ever do anything bad? No. God does everything good, doesn't he? I mean, if you look at the Genesis account, the Bible says over and over again, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. And the Bible says here in Matthew 21, 15, that the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now listen to this. They were sore displeased. How can you be unhappy? I mean, aren't you glad when you see somebody get saved? When you see God working and when Lynn puts her arms up like that? Hey, listen, praise God, you know? And, and here, here are these people, instead of rejoicing in who Jesus is, they're sore displeased, the Bible says. They were more concerned with the letter of the law than with the spirit of the law. Boy, I wish a lot of Baptist preachers would understand that one. They're more concerned with the letter of the law than with the spirit of the law. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I take great stock in the Bible, but I think oftentimes it's the spirit with which we convey it that people turn a deaf ear because they're like, look, I, I don't want to listen to that. 
I don't like the way he's saying that. And I found out a long time ago that if we say things with the right spirit and the right attitude, it'll be received much better. So here's, here's a group of people, the scribes or the lawyers. Listen, all of this during that 400 years, all right? Let's move on. Number four, the Sadducees, all right? And if you need to see the spelling, you can see it up there on the, on the screen. Now, who were the Sadducees? Well, you know, the old preacher years ago said, well, they were sad, you see, all right? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard that before, but I figured I'd just throw it out there tonight because I needed a good chuckle, all right? But here's, here's what they were. They were worldly-minded priests that relied on human reason. Now, folks, look, I'm, I'm glad that, that we have a Bible, that we have a God, that we don't have to rely on our human reasoning. They obeyed the law, but here's the catch. They conformed to the culture of their day. You know what, what's wrong with most churches today? Most churches don't look like churches. Most churches don't sound like churches. Most churches, you never hear the Bible in the churches. Why? Because they don't open it up. And yet the, people say, well, I just don't understand why God's not moving today. Well, God's not moving because his church is not what he intended it to be. You see, many have adopted their churches to the culture of the day. The Sadducees, when you study it out, that group that you see there, the second group, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were rival groups. They butted heads all the time. Uh, they didn't get along very much, and, and especially uh, when you think about the fact that, that the Pharisees were conservative and the, the Sadducees were liberal when it came to religious matters. Listen to some of their liberality. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of spirits, and they denied the immortality of the soul. Now, folks, listen, those are cardinal doctrines of the Word of God. How can, listen, the Bible tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if there is no resurrection, then we have no hope. I'm glad that up from the grave he arose. So when you think about these people and their beliefs, these Sadducees, they were secularists of the Jewish faith. And listen, if they had their way, they would have taken Jew, the Jewish faith and they would have taken it right back to where it was before. They would have paganized it. They would have taken it right back to where they came from. Listen to Matthew 16, verse 6. If you want to write that down, Matthew 16, 6. Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Now, look, when Jesus said leaven, he wasn't talking about something good. He was talking about the false doctrines, the false teaching, the erroneous things that they were trying to get people to believe. And these are dangerous groups. And when we read in our Bible and we're going to look at those books in the coming days, in these next couple weeks, we need to understand these groups as we're going through our Bibles. Here's another one. The, the, the next one, oh, let me say this before I move on. What's interesting, and I saw this years ago, remember how I said that the Pharisees and Sadducees, that, that they opposed each other? Here's a sad note, that in the days of Christ, these two rival groups came together to oppose Jesus. Now, how sad is that? You know, the last couple days, I haven't watched a whole lot of news, but all this rioting and stuff that's been going on, and, and, and you know what happens? They put that on mainstream TV. People sit at home and they see that, and you know what they do? 
They get in their car and go out there. They, they want to join in it. You know, like, like there's something good that's going to come out of that, throwing stuff at police. And listen, there's a few bad apples in every bunch. You, you can't throw every police. I'm glad we have police officers. You know, and listen, I'm all about human rights. I'm all about treating people equal. But understand, when you think about this, it, what's going on today is nothing new. Why? Because it happened in the days of Jesus. It happened before the days of Jesus. It goes all the way back to, 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 to the twins that were born and all that that is spilled over into the nation of Israel and all the surrounding. It's still going on in the Middle East, and it will until the day of Christ. And so as we look at this, it's, it's amazing how these groups come together. All right, the next one is the Sanhedrin. Now, it, it, the Sanhedrin, here it is. They were the supreme council and the tribunal of the Jews. And they were, they were headed by, the person in charge was the high priest. It was a body of 70 elders. Now, those elders, you could use another word, is judges. 70 elders, and those 70 elders were presided over by the high priest. So it was 70 plus 1, 71, and it was made up of chief priests, scribes, or lawyers. And the word elder there is not the same word that is synonymous with a pastor. In the Old Testament, that word there is actually a representative of the people. Uh, I was in the union uh, construction years ago, and we had, we had business uh, representatives, uh, business agents that, well, they were supposed to represent us whenever we had uh, some kind of uh, strike going on or some kind of wage dispute or whatever. So, so that's what these, these elders were. Now, where did this concept come from? Now, remember the, the traditions of their father, how, how many of these groups, they took the word of God much like today. Listen, do you know that a lot of the religions of the world today, or I would call them cults, what they do is they lift things out of the Word of God and they build doctrines and they twist it. A lot of times you're like, can you show me that in the Bible? Like, I still haven't found sprinkling in the Bible. It's just not in there. But yet so many, so many churches believe that you can sprinkle a baby and that baby's going to go to heaven. That's not in the Bible. And yet people teach that all the time. And listen, worse than that, people believe it. And so here's, here's you, you've got this Sanhedrin. Where does this concept come from? Well, if you want to turn there or write down the reference, Numbers 11, Numbers 11, verses 16 and 17. Listen to these verses. The Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me, here it is, 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. And I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the Spirit, which is upon thee, upon Moses, and I will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, and thou shalt bear it not thyself alone. Remember what his father-in-law said? He says, man, he says, Moses, you're going to kill yourself trying to take her all the needs of the people. You need some help. That's where this concept came from. But listen, what happened was, is that this group actually began to judge both civil and religious matters. And so when you see the Sanhedrin in the New Testament, here's what they were, what they were doing was, they had the power in their day to pass the death sentence, but not to execute it. That's, that's where the Roman government came in. They would just turn them over to the government at that time. So they could pass the death sentence. They just didn't execute it. And, and what's, here's the sad thing about the Sanhedrin. 
it was this body, 70 plus the high priest, that was actually involved in the hearings against Jesus and against many of the apostles. So, so again, you, you understand what they were involved in. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, the Bible tells us about one who was a part of this group. His name, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, John chapter number 3. And the Bible says in John chapter 3, listen, there was a man of the Pharisees, the Bible says, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? Because if any of his Sanhedrin buddies found out that he was talking to Jesus, he was not going to be in good shape with the whole rest of them. I mean, he had to make sure that he was still going to be able to be a card-carrying member of the Sanhedrin, you know? So he comes to Jesus under the banner of night, and as he comes to him, of course, the Bible says that he comes to Jesus, and he says unto him, and he calls Jesus Rabbi. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. So we have this group, this supreme court of the Jewish people that was known as the Sanhedrin, and it's important that we understand who they are. Look at number six here. The next group is the Herodians. Now, who are the Herodians? Take the I-A-N-S off of it, and it pretty much helps you understand that this was a group of people. It was a political party that took their name from the family of Herod. Now, again, think about this. It's all about power. Where did this group, the Herodians, get their power from? They got it from the Roman government. They were backed by the Roman government. They opposed any change. They liked things the way they were. So any change in the political situation, they didn't like it. Well, get, here it is. They thought Jesus was a revolutionary. They believed Jesus was a changer of government. Jesus, remember, Jesus did not come to establish government. Now, there's going to come a time where he's going to set up rule and reign, right? But when he came, he, did not, he came to die for the sins of the world. And the Bible tells us as we read this, we need to understand this group known as the Herodians because they opposed any change in the political system. But what does that mean? They opposed Jesus. The Bible says, here's a reference, Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went forth. And straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So they said, look, just like, the, just like everybody else, how can we get rid of this troublemaker known as Jesus? The one that says he's the king of the Jews. Here's the last group, is the publicans. Now, the publicans were, anybody know what they were? April 15th? Tax collectors. <laughs> That's what publicans were. They were tax collectors for the Roman government. They collected public taxes. And because of this, oftentimes, they themselves were guilty of extortion. Uh, you know, right, right now we're dealing with, we're trying to get our parking lot done, and I feel like I'm being extorted, or this church is being extorted. And, and it's nothing new. I mean, always, somebody's always trying to stick their hands in our pockets. But in, our, in the Bible, there's a couple people that we can identify Luke 19, 8, listen to this verse, Zacchaeus, anybody know him? He was a wee little man, right? Zacchaeus stood and he said unto the Lord, listen to what he says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, 
And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Why do you think he made that statement? Because I'd say there's a good chance that he was extorting people. That he realized, hey, listen, guilty as charged. Otherwise, he wouldn't have even brought it up. By the way, he didn't have to tell Jesus. Jesus already knew. And so Zacchaeus was one. How about this? Jesus chose 12 men. We call them apostles or disciples of the Lord. Well, the Bible says in Luke 5, verse 27 and verse 28, that after these things he went forth and he saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, follow me. And the Bible says he left all. He rose up and he followed him. Now, anybody else know Levi had another name in the Bible? Anybody know what it was? Matthew. First book of the Bible, right? First book of the New Testament. Say, well, how can he have Matthew? How many of you realize that? Uh, Listen, I was saved for many years. I didn't realize Matthew and Levi were the same. The reason for the name is because Matthew was the Greek name. Levi actually was the Hebrew name. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, remember Peter was also called Simon? Uh, We see a lot of this in the Word of God, so we need to understand this. So you find here publicans. This is a group of people that is during that time period uh, known as that silent years, the 400 years. Now, let's move a little bit closer to getting started. We'll get into it next week. But let's talk about what is the subject of the New Testament? Why did God give us the New Testament in our Bible? Here it is, just a simple statement. It is redemption through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's, that is what the New Testament is all about. That's the subject of it. You have probably have heard people say there's a scarlet thread that runs through the Bible, right? Well, it does, all the way from the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament. And, and so, listen, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 9. I want you to see a couple of verses here. Because it's important for us to understand that when we get to the New Testament, what we're seeing is God's redemption plan coming to fruition. Uh, the, the person, and by the way, if Jesus would have come from heaven and that's all he did, it would not have been enough. Jesus had to come to do the work of God, and he came and did the will of his Father, which meant that he had to go to the cross and give his life for, for, the, for the souls and for the sins of the world. So look what the Bible says in Hebrews 9, when you think about redemption through Christ. Uh, Hebrews 9, look at verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God, I love this, for us. Verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, what's that next word? Once. How many times did Jesus die? Once. How many times did he atone for our sins? Once. Look, you cannot, if you've been saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Why? Because you didn't do anything to save yourself. God saved you by Jesus' shed blood. And if you are saved, your sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't have to die over and over and over and over again. He came to redeem us from our sins. And the Bible says right here that he has entered in once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It wasn't by some bull or by some goat or by some bullock. 
or some lamb. It was by the Lamb of God. Jesus came himself as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that, that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And I say hallelujah to that. Amen. And so we see that the subject of the New Testament is redemption, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. What's the purpose of the New Testament? Well, here it is. Write it down. Is to make us wise unto salvation and serving God. And then secondly, to reveal to us what God has done for us. And what notice here what God has done for us and with us in Christ. What does God say to us in the New Testament? That we would be conformed to the image of his own dear son. You know what that means? If you are saved, you're a Christian. And you know what a Christian ought to act like and look like? Jesus. And the more we live, the closer we ought to be to being more like Christ and less like ourselves. So when we get into this, I love what somebody said here, that the Old Testament reveals the human need. We see that all through the Old Testament. It reveals the human need, but the New Testament supplies that need. See, Jesus came. Remember, he came after those world powers. He came after that 400 years. And so we find here that as you look at, at the beginning of our New Testament of our Bible, you get into those first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel accounts, God reveals Christ's redemption. Well, how does he do that? Through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you get to the book of Acts in the, in the New Testament, you know what the book of Acts is? It's the continuation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, it didn't end when Jesus died on the cross. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. And, and when you get into the epistles of the New Testament, what do you find there? It's the gospel being exposed through the doctrines and the practical aspects. That's why I love reading those church epistles. Did you hear what they're called? Church epistles. They help us to understand uh, how a church is to be conducted and how we're supposed to behave ourselves. And then the last book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And that's when all of God's redemptive purposes are culminated for all time. And I, I love it. When you look at the New Testament of, of our Bible, here's what you find. There's 27 books. If you want to write these numbers down, 27 books, 260 chapters. There's 7,959 verses, 181,253 words, and 838,380 uh, 838, letters. You say, Pastor, why do you... Because the Bible says every jot and tittle, every word of God is important and we need to make sure we study it. That's why we're, we're doing this series, to go through it, to understand it. Now, notice the language of the New Testament. I already said some of this, so I'll, I'll move through this. God chose the Greek language for the New Testament, but it's called the Koine Greek. Today, there is a modern Greek language. It is, a, it is similar, but it is different. You know what I like about this? Remember how God said his word is forever settled, right? God's word doesn't change. God doesn't change. You know why I like that God used this Koine Greek language? Because it's a dead language. It is forever frozen in time. This language is settled. Does English language frustrate anybody else? 
It frustrates me all the time. Uh, words that should be this or should sound like this. And, you know, every day I turn, you know, a lot of people say, well, I, I just can't understand that. Look, I'm not a linguist, but I'll tell you this. I love studying God's word. I love doing word studies. And when I look at this language, you know, it's, it's amazing to me. How, let, let me just show you here. Mike, do you have that slide with, a, with John? Look at this here. This is John 3.16. Now, you know it in English, right? I hope you do. Do you know it? All right. So notice the bottom. That, that is what Greek, the Koine Greek, looks like. And, and, and I love studying it because when you, when you look through it, there's so many neat things that you can find. And, 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 and I, of course, I don't do my Bible. People thought when I taught at the college I did my Bible studies, my devotions in Greek. I, I don't do that. But, but when I look at it, you, you know, if I read, you see the words there, for God so loved the world that he gave us, we know how John 3.16 goes. If I read the exact order, and, and God, God does everything on purpose. There's, there's an order. God is a God of order. So when you look at this, here's how it would read. If I'm, I'm just going to read it, I'm not going to pronounce the Greek. I, I don't want to dazzle anybody tonight. But, but here's how it would read. Here it is. Thus for loved God the world that the Son, the only begotten, he gave so that everyone believing in him should not perish, but should have life eternal. That's how it reads. Now you say, Pastor, why the, why the change in the order? Well, again, you have to understand, when it comes to uh, our Bible, when God gave his word, God didn't give chapter numbers. You ought to be thankful somebody's taken the time to put chapter numbers, if, if, if somebody says John 3, 16, you can go to it and find it, especially if you got those cheater tabs in your Bible, right? But here's the thing is, here's what happens is, God gave his word in thought patterns. So a lot of times, here's what I pay attention to. There, there's four punctuation marks in the Greek language, the Koine Greek language. So I always pay attention to punctuation marks like periods and commas and, and so on, because that's the, in the end, that's, that's where the people that translated our Bible into the English language, that's how they knew there was a paragraph. When you look in your Bible, you see paragraphs. So whenever I look at that, here's what, what when you study the language that God chose, this, this Greek language, God chose this language, and here's the neat, just so many things, I'll, I'll just limit it. The most important or most emphatic thing in a sentence is what came last in the sentence. What was the second most important or emphatic thing came first in the sentence. What was the least most emphatic is what came between those two. Now remember, all scripture is important. Why? Because it's God's word. But see, you have to understand the emphasis where God places the emphasis. And we can get into some more of that later on if you're interested in it, but I just love it. Now, here's what the word koine means, all right? The word koine means common. People say, well, I, that word koine, I don't know about that. How many of you have heard koinonia? Have you heard that? What's the, what English word do we use for koinonia? Fellowship, right? Koinonia means fellowship. Well, guess where koinonia, it comes from koine. That's where it comes from. And it, it's basically talking about common. Now, why, why did God use this? Well, I interesting, if you think back historically, Koine, the Greek language of that time, 
It was the common language of the Mediterranean world in the first century. When did Jesus die in the first century? When did the church start? When did Jesus say, I will build my church? First century. The book of Acts takes place first century. Are you getting it? And so this was the common language. That's why God chose the Koine language. L listen to this. Write this reference down. Mark 12, 37. Listen to this. David, therefore, himself called him Lord. Whence, he, whence is he then his son? Here it is. And the common people heard him gladly. Hey, what good is it? I remember when I was a bad little Catholic boy. You notice how I said that? I remember when I was a bad little Catholic boy and, the, and the, the mass was in Latin. Guess who could understand it? The priest. Guess who couldn't understand it? Common, ordinary people. And so God gave a language. He chose a language that common, ordinary people could understand it. I get so weary and so tired. I was in a Christ, Christian, I use that word loosely, bookstore years ago, years ago. I was just walking around, perusing around, pastor looking at various things. I overheard, wasn't eavesdropping, overheard a lady that worked there. Somebody walked in and she said, can I help you? And they said, well, I'm looking for a Bible. And she says, oh, okay, well, let me show you where the Bibles are. She says, is there a particular Bible you're looking for? Well, somebody told me that I should get a King James Bible. And I went, yes, you know. And, and so uh, the person looks at it and made a, made a comment. And she says, but you know, a lot of people say that it's very archaic and it's hard to understand. Hogwash. Do you know that the Bible that you have, the King James Bible was written in the same era as Shakespearean literature. And yet today, Shakespearean literature is held to such high regard, I have never gotten anything out of Shakespeare's writing. I don't know who Macbeth is, and I don't care who Macbeth is, but I'll tell you this, I care what the Word of God is. And people say all the time, I just can't understand all the these and thous and those. And Listen, in your Bible, you know where it says, he that seeketh, findeth, he that knocketh, it shall be open unto him. I love the King James Bible. You know why? Those ETHs, you know what they mean? That they don't just knock one time. They keep knocking and keep knocking. It's talking about a continual ongoing action. There's a reason that the translators did a masterful job with the Word of God. They did not, they did not twist it and distort it. We have God's Word and I'm going to tell you, over all these 35 years I've been a Christian, God's hand of blessing has been on this Bible that I hold in my hand. God is still using it today, and we need to understand that. So when we think about the language, it's so important. Let me just talk real quickly, and I guess we'll finish here tonight. Mike said I wouldn't get done, and he's right. But the gospel records, can I tell you this? There's only, listen to me, there's only one gospel. See, a lot of times people say, well, I want to turn to the gospel of Matthew. I want to turn to the Gospel of Mark. You ever look in your Bible? Some Bibles actually have it right. It says at the top, at the, at the very beginning of each one of them, the Gospel according to. The Gospel according to. See, it's, there's only one Gospel of Jesus Christ. But what, what's notice here, write it down, the subjects of the Gospels. Here it is. What is the subject of the Gospels? It's the history of the life of Christ. It covers every aspect of the life of Jesus. As a matter of fact, John's gospel actually begins 
with the pre-incarnate Christ. <laughs> In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hey, listen, we, we have an eternal God. He didn't begin in Bethlehem's manger. He began in eternity past. He did not have a birthday. He has always been and he always will be. And that's what we see when we study. And we, we need to understand the subjects of the life of Christ. We're talking about his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's what the subject of the Gospels is. The purpose of the Gospels, here it is, to reveal how God accomplished his work of redemption. We already talked about that. God gives us a foundation for the doctrines of the epistles that we see in the New Testament. And I, I wrote this down, and, and honestly, I feel very strongly about this. We are a very limited uh, individual as far as human beings, right? So we have a finite mind. You know, our mind is just like a little bitty pea, little bitty pebble. But listen, our finite minds cannot comprehend the plan and the program of God and his sovereign ability to bring it all to pass. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to pick up right there with the purpose of the Gospels. We're going to pick it up with Matthew, and we're, going to, we're just going to walk through. We're taking this trip down uh, Route 66. We're, going to, we're going to, basically going to walk through every book. Tonight was an introduction of the New Testament, and so I, I want you to think about this because it's very important that we're starting here and we're going to work through, show, show the books of the Bible again there on the bookshelf there. Brother Mike, you got that picture there? And uh, throw him off here a little bit. Uh, we're going to have to jump a few slides. But this is, this is the journey. So we're starting right there. We're going to work from Matthew all the way to the book of Revelation. And we're going to take this journey uh, down Route 66. And I think it's going to be a great time. So as we travel together, I hope through this journey that we're all going to be familiar. How many learned something tonight? Anybody learn anything? That's what it's all about, is to learn something from the Word of God. And I realize we didn't read a lot of scriptures, but I'll tell you this, is we're setting up the foundation as we jump into uh, the book of Matthew next, next week, and I hope that you're looking forward to that. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll let you be dismissed tonight. Lord, thank you again for the Word of God. Thank you for the power of the Word of God. It's quick, it's powerful, it's alive. Lord, may we study it, may we, may we understand how you put it together, the structure of the Word of God, book by book, that I think will enhance our study of your, of your uh, Bible, the Word of God. Now bless each one that's here and each one that's listening tonight, and help us in the days ahead. Continue to pray for those that need our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you. You are dismissed.